are listening to The Thrive Podcast, where every week we dive into a practical, tactical tip to bring you from a life of simply surviving to thriving. It's personal development for the everyday girl who is done with coasting through her days, done with feeling like she's missing out on the deeper meaning of her own life, and done with mediocrity once and for all. Because it's not enough to simply survive, you deserve to thrive. Welcome back to Thrive. At first glance, one might think that Lydia Finette could be the most confident woman in the world. She is the leading charity auctioneer in the world, raising over a billion dollars for over 800 organizations. She's been on the Today Show, in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Vogue, Vanity Fair. She's even got an upcoming Netflix series around her first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. Oh, and she's the host of the Claim Your Confidence podcast, and a wife, and a mom of three. But beneath the shiny surface, Lydia has had her fair share of failures and fully believes that confidence is an inside job, a learned process that literally anyone can manage. Yep, even you. Today on Thrive, we talk about building confidence from nothing, taking failures in stride, and powering through with genuine positivity. Lydia also shares her foolproof strike method for getting a quick burst of real confidence in real time and the full lowdown on imposter syndrome and how to kick it to the curb for good. Stay tuned through this episode. Drop it five stars if you like what you're listening to. And now welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. Yay. We are so honored to have you on here for really a cool girl chat on confidence because you are like the leading lady on the subject, which is really exciting. You're the host of the Claim Your Confidence podcast. You're the leading charity auctioneer in the world, raising over a billion dollars for over 800 organizations, which is, I mean, collapse all around. That is incredible. You've been on the Today Show, in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Vogue, Vanity Fair. You've got an upcoming Netflix series, On your previous book, I mean, damn. (laughs) Oh, and you're also a wife and a mom, so let's not forget that. But can you fill in the gaps here for us and maybe give us a peek behind the scenes of who you are behind the very shiny surface, since that resume is like the most impressive resume we've ever seen. It is funny. I do often think when people are reading the resume and listening, I'm like, that sounds amazing. That woman is killing it. (laughs) And then it's funny to actually think, wow, those are accomplishments that have happened. But of course, I've been doing this for over two decades. So all of these accomplishments have come as a result of many years of hard work. And as you alluded to, I'm an auctioneer. I would say that is my passion above all else. I became a charity auctioneer at Christie's Auction House when I was 24 years old. I was a young woman doing a job that really wasn't meant for young women at the time. It was very male, mostly British, definitely older. And I tried out in the sort of survivor type tryouts where you get thrown into a room with 20 people and they cut people every single day. And I just kept making it day after day. And I remember thinking the last day, wow, I really have a shot at this. And when they passed me, they said, you know, we don't really know what to do with you because you don't look like an auctioneer, which was true at the time. I did not look like an auctioneer, but we'll just send you to the auctions that nobody else wants to take. And when I was 24 years old and I was living in New York, I didn't really know that many people. Charity auctions take place late at night at these big galas with all these celebrities. And I was sort of like, yeah, send me wherever you want me. I'll go. I will go wherever I will get on any stage. And I did. And it started out where I would take, you know, 30, 40 auctions 
then it was 50, 60. And it eventually got to the point after the first decade, I was taking a hundred auctions after work every single night. So I like such a funny progression. I would be at my desk all day. And then I ran events and was in the events department when I was younger. So I would change into a cocktail dress, kind of like a superwoman change and leave my office at eight o'clock at night to go somewhere in New York city to get on stage for an auction and then go meet my friends for dinner afterwards. And I did it for so long, even as we were speaking before the podcast about children, I did it pregnant. I did it where I would go home between when I finished a, a sort of work assignment put my babies to bed and then go back out. So it's always been this really fun side job that turned into something that was such a passion that it's now what I do full-time. Okay. So how did you first get into that? Because that feels like such a random thing to come across and then be like, wow, I love this. This is my passion. Let's go for it. So I love that. Were you like always at auctions as a kid or like where did this first stem? Not at all. I read an article when I was in college in Vanity Fair about Princess Diana's dresses being auctioned off at this magical place called Christie's. And the funny thing is when I tell people that, a lot of people remember that, or if they've seen the article, or they just somehow know about this this article or this piece in Vanity Fair. Um, There was a very famous photograph of Princess Diana with that beautiful tiara and a gorgeous dress in the front. And all of her dresses been auctioned off for charity. And I remember being intrigued by this place called Christie's. And I'll be honest, Erica, I really wanted it to be what it was in the article, which was this mystical place called Christie's where the women dressed up and they got to travel around the world and they auctioned things off. And in the the piece, it was always this man in a black tie, you know, he was in black tie up there, but there were women around that. There were women who were as part of the backdrop of that engine doing what they were supposed to be doing on a, on a daily a day-to-day basis, which looked very glamorous to me as a reader. And it just captured my imagination. And so I started basically stalking the internship coordinator. And I grew up in Louisiana, you know, New York City internships were not on my radar. And I didn't realize that they were things that people had planned 11 months in advance. And so I started calling for a June internship in April. And this sweet woman, Mary Libby, who I came to know very well after this, just sort of kept laughing at me. So why are you calling me? This internship program closed in January and I just refused to let her say no. And I kept asking in different ways. And finally I asked the right question, which was, why do you cap the internship program? Everyone's doing it for free, right? And she said, yes, but everyone has to go to museums and twice a week, all the interns go to museums twice a week. So they can only take 15 people per group. So we can only have 30 people. And I said, well, I don't have to go to the museums. Obviously, as you've heard, my interest was more in the sort of surroundings of Christie's, not in visiting a museum. So I said, I don't have to go to a museum. I can just stay and do all the work that the other interns aren't doing. And that was finally what made her say, okay, fine. Just, you know what, you can do a modified (laughs) internship. I remember the words modified internship and you will come and you won't do any of the museums unless anyone else can. And of course, everyone was in college. So the people generally missed a lot of internship days. And I would sort of slide into those museums. And that was really my first introduction into seeing auctions real time. And then I started in events after my internship. I was hired out of my internship and the events department was responsible for accompanying the auctioneers to the charity galas to take down the bids as people were bidding. Because at charity galas, there could be a thousand people in the room and you need people to help you when you're on stage because there are blind spots, there are people talking and eating. And so you need 
what we call bid spotters. And I was one of those bid spotters. And I remember standing at the Elton John AIDS Foundation, sorry, excuse me, at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, watching one of our auctioneers up there. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, that's what I want to do. That is what I want to do. And I, and I think I could be good at it. And I wasn't at the beginning, but I became very good at it through practice. Yeah. So then did you go home and immediately started talking really quickly to yourself in the mirror and practicing <laughs> to nail down? To nail it yes, down. that's exactly what I do every single night. Just chat, chat, chat. No, <laughs> I, I actually just started going as a bid spotter to so many auctions and yeah. I can, and then at some point they let you as a bid clerk stand next to the auctioneer on stage to help spot from the stage. And I definitely remember being on stage thinking, okay, this is what I could do. And at one point there was one auctioneer who he was Swiss and he didn't have a great sense of humor, but he wanted to have a great sense of humor. So I would slide him jokes <laughs> while Aww. he was up there. Um, and I realized even at that early stage that humor was going to be an important part of my auctioneering if I ever got that opportunity. And it certainly has become a huge part of what I do. I think humor is the easiest way to sell, the easiest way to get people to pay attention to you when they don't really want to, which is what charity auctioneering is about. <laughs> That's awesome. So were you always a confident person too, like as a child, or do you think this was really something that was a learned process for you over time as you honed your focus and kind of had a clearer vision for what you wanted for yourself? That's really what my entire second book, Claim Your Confidence, is about. I think it is a learned skill that we can use over the course of our life and we can really challenge ourselves to use making ourselves stronger and more confident as we go. So many people opt out of trying things that make them uncomfortable or going and doing things that don't make them feel great simply because they think that they won't be able to do it or if they do, it'll be a horrible experience. But what I've learned over the years, and really a lot of it was learned through charity auctioneering, I had to get on those stages night after night, whether or not it went well the night before. And each time I would learn, okay, I took an auction, there was no microphone. It was horrible. I mean, if you can imagine 300 people talking for an hour and a half, completely ignoring me and no one bidding, that was an early auction for me. But what did I learn? The next time I went back five years, six years later, two years later, however many years it was later, and there was no microphone, I'd already been through that before. So I knew what to expect. I knew how to course correct. And you know, I say in the book, that's happened to me nine times since that first time. And now I don't think anything of it. Because I've learned to expect the unexpected. I've learned that nothing when I get on stage is ever going to go the way I want it to. And that for me has been such a learning process over the course of my life. In the last chapter of my book, I talk about this car accident that my family had in October of 2021. And one of my greatest lessons learned and really about confidence since that accident has been, you know, I had a spinal fusion. I mean, my spine was fractured. It had to be repaired. I have a rod in the bottom part of my back. It's scary to try things that I used to do. It's scary to ski, which is something that I've always loved to do. And I did it for the first time in December. And guess what? It was fine. And each time that happens, I think to myself, okay, try something else because you're scared of it. It may not hurt. It may hurt, but you'll know, you'll know immediately and you can stop. And then once I do it on the other side of it, is there's so much more confidence to try something new. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we end up associating confidence with having experiences that validate a feeling of deserving to be confident 
in that specific thing. Like you've already done X, so you can definitely do it again. Or like you've are you're already an established expert in Y, so it changes how you personally approach that next thing if you already have that sense of validation in it. So besides just kind of hyping yourself up, or maybe that is it in and of itself, how do you kind of approach those brand new experiences confidently when you don't necessarily have the resume to back it up or even a prior negative experience to go off of when it's just this complete unknown, but you want some semblance of like, all right, I got this going into it. I tell a friend. I always tell a friend because that for me is the ultimate push. In my case, I tell my best friend, Mary, who holds me accountable. We can't do this on our own in life. I think people so often think to themselves, like, if I'm going to go out there and climb that mountain, I've got to do it by myself. It's like, no, get the guide who has been there before and shows you what to do. I'll say my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. I wrote that book and I wrote the proposal for the book because my best friend gave me the proposal for her book to show me what a book proposal looked like. Think about if I were to say to you right now, okay, Erica, why don't you write a book? Where do you even start? Where do you begin? And so many people don't begin because of that first step. So what should you do? Look to your community, go online, find somebody who will give you the guidance to show you how to do it. And then that will give you confidence. And frankly, they'll also hold you accountable because not only did my friend Mary give me her book proposal, she then kept calling to be like, okay, when are you writing the book? Have you written your proposal? Have you done this? In a way, it's irritating because I wanted to not do it in many ways. But on the other side, it really made me do it. And I'm so thankful to her always for giving me that. And I've passed my proposal on to so many people because that helps with that first step. Yeah. Well, gosh, everybody needs a Mary because what a good friend too, to be able to be like, Hey, I got you. Let me, let me show you exactly how it's done. Like that's incredible. And by by the way, also gave me her agent's information and the best, truly one of the best hype friends ever. And my we share an agent now, but at the time I used to send her agent things and, and she would say, oh, you have a book in you, but it's not that book or <laughs> it's not this book. And it was so funny because I needed that reality check. The books that I was writing before were not what she wanted. And when I finally wrote the book that became the most powerful woman in the room is you, I knew sending her that first chapter, which ultimately I sold the book off of, that it was strong because I tried a number of times going back to that confidence piece. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, I love also too that you built so much off of having that perceived, I don't like the word failure because I feel like, and you're a perfect example of this. You learned so much from it and was able to glean something from that to take onto the next experience where it's like, was it really a failure? Because you were able to use that in some way. And I also love, I think, I think you share this in, um, in your book now. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that in four years of playing three different high school sports, you've never, you've never won a single game. And <laughs> Middle I, school. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because like that could totally derail someone's confidence if they are banking their confidence on having that, that win, that literal W to justify their worth or their ability or their whatever but you just persisted anyway. And that's like such a pivotal age group too, where so much confidence I think is ended up placed on those experiences that you're having and having like that actual something to justify it. And it's so much harder to get it from some sort of other internal sense. So what do you think drove you forward through losses, especially at that age 
And what was kind of the narrative that you told yourself as you were going through that to keep going when maybe middle school or high school you or whatever would have otherwise been like, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm going to just give up and call it a, call it a loss. Well, I have to give credit to my parents who just sort of signed us up for sports willy nilly and we had to go. So I'm not sure that I could have necessarily quit, but I do think it has to go with the attitude because as you said, so in middle school, I played volleyball, basketball, and ran track, and we never won a game in three years. And as I say in the book, it wasn't as if we lost the game by a narrow margin, we would lose 52 to two. I mean, it was brutal out there. It was just basically five of us standing there while people just put the ball into the basket. And then we would finally get the ball and not be able to shoot. There were only six members of our team because we were in such a small school and we were playing these huge public schools. We were sort of a small private school. I think my graduating class had 13 people and we were playing, you know, the big public schools that had hundreds of children in each of the classes. So I think the parents knew we were going to lose even going in, but it goes back a lot to positivity, which again is something else I write about in the book, powering your positivity. And this is really a trait I've leaned on my whole life. You have to be positive. People don't make you positive. And I, I know that a lot of times people think that, you know, some people are just positive people. You can choose to be positive in most situations, not all, but in most situations, you have the ability and the control over your own sort of perception of the way that something's going to go. And for me, it was very much about getting my team in this place where I thought we were going to win and therefore they would think we were going to win too. And it was, you know, all about the cheerleading and that we were like cheering each other on and having our orange slices and putting those ribbons in our hair and getting out there. And on the other side of all of those losses, it was so sad, but at some point it also just became like, okay, we lost. And I remember going from that school too. I went to a boarding school in the Northeast. My mom is British. So boarding school was very much on her radar at a very early age. And she told us so many things about going to boarding school that we all became completely obsessed with it because it sounded really cool and fun. And, you know, she only told us the exciting parts of boarding school. So we were ready to go. And it was really interesting because I got to this boarding school in the Northeast called Taft, which I really loved, but I went into a sports team and everybody was so competitive. And living in the Northeast now, I see it's kind of a different, a different mantra about sports at an early age. I mean, people are maniacal about getting their kids into sports and in nine practices a week and for a six-year-old. So it's just a very different, it was a very different culture to the one that I grew up in, which was kind of like, good luck. We'll, we'll see how you do. And we actually already know that you're going to lose. So it's fine. But I definitely remember being on the field one year and someone threw her lacrosse stick after a game. And I was just sort of like, wait, why are you so worked up? Like, who cares if we lost? doesn't mean I'm not going to try. doesn't mean I think we're not going to win. And in many cases we did, but the loss part of that for me is not that heavy. And as you said, I think failure is a fine word because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter if you lose. You're always going to have another chance in something else. Maybe not that game or maybe not that sport, but if you get out there with your positive attitude and you give it your all, then great. You did it. Good job. You know, even if you, even if you weren't the victor, did you do the best you can do? Great. Then you've completely rocked your life today. Yeah. For people who might be listening, who are going like, all right, Lydia, but like, this feels fake or like, it doesn't feel, I don't feel chipper or cheery, or we love the buzzword, you know, like toxic positivity. What do you say to that and kind of making it feel maybe more authentic or connecting to that sense of positivity in a way that 
feels real and true to you, especially if you're in a moment where your gut reaction or your first thought is not all that positive. Yeah. I think toxic positivity is an interesting buzzword that I hear a lot because I do believe that you have the choice to be positive in life. For me, it's very, it's sort of an in the moment thing. I can't describe it as anything other than that. And I talk about an incident in the book about running down to the subway after this sort of series of small issues that had happened one morning. It was, you know, started off like the morning was great. I was taking my kids to school. It seemed so perfect. It was snowing outside in New York and oh, it was just perfect. We arrive at the subway station and I realize all of a sudden that I've forgotten their backpacks. So we like run home. And by the time we get back to the subway stuff, it's sleeting. We get off, it is pouring with rain. And my Southern upbringing means I never have an umbrella because I always think of snow as beautiful and I don't think of it as wet. I really, at some point after 22 years, should have mastered that. But I arrived at school and I had this huge meeting I was in charge of. I had this presentation I was supposed to be giving and things just kept going wrong. And the final piece was I ran down into the subway platform, which as a New Yorker, you know, you should never do because it's never a good thing. And I tripped and fell and I slid across the subway platform, ripping my tights. Everything in my bag came out. It was like, and it was just snowy and disgusting. And as if it isn't disgusting on the floor enough, just add, add a layer of sleet on a New York City subway. And I also missed the train that I was about to get that would have put me under rock center perfectly in time for my meeting with my wet hair and my ripped tights and my dirty, disgusting hands. And I was so angry. You know, I was angry at the world. How could this have happened? I was going to be late. You know, how could my kids have forgotten their backpacks? I mean, I was in the spiral. Anyone can be in that spiral. We're in those spirals all the time. This happens to every single one of us throughout the day. And I remember looking at myself in the reflection of the subway as it pulled away. And I, all I could see was rage in my face. And I remember thinking to myself, I could literally ruin the day of everyone around me. Because in New York City, it's so easy to be angry. And you can be angry with no repercussions because everybody is used to being sort of shoved and jostled and yelled at, getting on and off the subway. And I could contribute to that. And I could make it worse because I'm also tall. So I could really just sort of bring my rage. And then I could take it to work and take it out on my team in two seconds. I could take it out on everyone in that meeting. I could get home. I could do that to my kids and to my husband. And it could just spiral and spiral and spiral. And an old boss used to say to us, when I was in my twenties and I used to get into a lot of interpersonal drama that I thought was really fun in the office, like mix it up, you know, by the water cooler, like, Oh, did you hear what this person said? Um, I remember saying to her, well, this person did this thing and that person did this thing. And she looked at me dead in the eyes and she goes, you know, Lydia, I like to think that over the course of the day, if I get in a fight, it's 50, 50. If I get in two fights, I should probably take a look in the mirror. Ooh. And it really hit me in the gut. Yeah. Think about that because who's the problem. Is it everyone else in the world? No, it's not. You're the problem, in the words of Taylor Swift. Like, it's you. It's me. Whatever she says. <laughs> I love her new album. It's um, me. Hi. It's me. I'm Hi. the problem. <laughs> I'm the problem. Big old problem. And I realized in that moment that I could actually apply that same thinking to that moment. And I did. And instead of yelling at people as I got on the subway, I just stepped aside and let them get on. And I put on some hype music that for me is always an easy way to flip back into the positive, especially, I mean, New York's a tough place to live. You know, it's dirty. There are people everywhere. Not everyone's nice. There's 
a lot of issues that the city's having. And sometimes putting on the music and just blasting a great song is enough to flip me into that positive mode. And then, you know, I got to work and I was like, this is not the end of the day. Going back to what I said about humor. I walked into that meeting after taking off my tights, washing my hands. And I was like, sorry, guys, I just slid across the subway platform and I'll tell you later, go start, keep on with the meeting. And if anyone can meet me afterwards, I'd be happy to. Otherwise I'll do a quick wrap up. No one died. Everybody liked the story of the subway. I've gotten plenty of mileage out of the subway story, but that to me has been a real lesson. And I use it a lot, you know, on my daughter's birthday, there was a lift that passed us by and then got stuck behind a garbage truck. We were going to be late to school. We were supposed to bring her a cake. And I got so upset. And I, when we finally got there, I said to the driver, I can't believe you passed it. Like we were just standing right there. How could you pass us? And I saw my children's faces and I was sort of like, this is an example for me to not go into that negative spiral. Cause I now have three children watching what I'm doing. So I said to the children, I said, you know what? We are going to reset the day. First and foremost, sir, I want to say, I'm sorry for my attitude and for saying that he was like, it's okay. I, you know, I understand. And I said to the kids, I was like, that shouldn't, I should not have done that. And I apologize to you and we're going to have a better day. You can reset your day. It's not that it always has to go perfectly, but look outward. Who are you hurting with your negativity? Don't look inward. It's not always about you. And that's something that I truly believe helps in terms of powering your own positivity. Yes. I love that. And I, it reminds me of something I've heard this. We talked about this on a previous episode, but then I just ended up sticking with it and it hits my mind every single time something bad happens. And it's like, is it a bad day or is it just a bad moment? And like, if you, if you just flip your perspective where you can just look at it as like, all right, that instance, whatever it was sucked, didn't go according to plan, wouldn't have chosen it that way, but it is done. It happened. The next moment could be better. (laughs) And like, I love, I love the perspective of assessing your own accountability and like really looking yourself in the mirror and saying, you know what? The world isn't just all happening to me. I also have a say so in what, how certain things are going. I can't control everything, but I can control some things and the things I can't control. I can at least control my attitude towards. And that in and of itself is like, sometimes that right there is like the ticker to make you just think twice. Like you said, before you end up throwing your stuff out there and having that impact everybody else around you and having a butterfly effect of negativity instead of being able to kind of, I think sometimes like you did with your kids though too, they'll remember that and they'll remember, okay, like like, XYZ didn't go according to plan, but like mom could have raged out and like almost did, but they'll remember the fact that you were able to check yourself in the moment and choose something different. And you, it, it, I feel like it's those moments where you, you are privy to seeing the choice in action where mm-hmm. you actually remember that the choice exists in the first place because yeah. it doesn't, it wasn't just the automatic, that's what happened. It was like, wait, you could have done X, you chose Y, and we all saw how much better it turned out because of that. And the other thing it's really important to think about over the course of the day, because you know how, when we talk about things spiraling, it's sort of like, okay, the backpacks and then, you know, the rain and then the subway, each of these things is an individual moment that happened. It's not the world conspiring against you. Like there is no meteorological moment that corresponds to my subway fall. Those are two separate things. My children forgetting their backpacks has nothing to do with me sliding on the subway. And yet, because it's all one part of the morning, it's connected in my mind. I'm like, the world is against it. No, the world is not against you. That is not true. 
It's how I'm reacting to each of these things. And yes, it's fine to be frustrated. And of course, we're all going to have a bad day. But also, as I said, think outward. It's not always about you. And the way that you approach something is so important in life because you can see that immediate effect. Think about it anytime you go into a grocery store or to a Starbucks. How many people are standing around that Starbucks counter huffing and puffing because their coffee isn't ready? And you don't think that barista, that hardworking barista knows that? Yeah, they absolutely know it because they can see it because everyone's like, oh, I ordered this 15 minutes ago and it's not ready. And there are 50,000 people here. And where is my coffee? Meanwhile, this person's dealing with a broken machine. Maybe something's happening. You have no idea what's going on. So just try this for me. The next time you're in a situation like that, when the person hands you the coffee, look them straight in the eye and be like, thank you so much. I hope you're having a great day and watch their eyes change and watch how they interact with the next person because of what you've done. And you can say that in a grocery store line, you can say that to a server. I had a great, I've had a great example on that of both of my parents, very, very respectful of every person they meet in their life, whether that is the person opening the door, whether that is a person at the grocery store, direct eye contact, big smile. Thank you so much for doing that. It changes the way that people see the world and it changes the way you see the world. Yes. And I think that's directly tied to confidence too, because I just came, I just came back from um, visiting one of my best friends in St. Louis. And we were, I was in the airport early morning flight waiting at my gate. And this dude went up to the gate agent and mind you, there was like a line of us waiting to speak to the gate agent, me being one of them. And he just decided he should cut into the front of the line to ask whatever question he had. And he thought it was quick enough that it didn't warrant, you know, waiting in line with everybody else. And the gate agent so kindly gave him a quick answer, but then also directed him like, okay, please, sir, please, you know, get in line with everybody else. And he decided this would be a good time to flip out. He was saying, I want to see your name badge. I'm going, and she, she was calm, cool, collected and confident. If there ever was one, she was like, sure. She had a scarf covering her name badge. She was like, here you go. Let me take that off. So you can see I'm proud of my name. Here it is. And he made such a huff about it. And I was just watching her as he left and as everybody else kind of went on their merry, their merry way, just to kind of see like, was she phased by this? Cause I was thinking, gosh, if it was me, I'm not yeah. a fan of like being publicly humiliated or dealing totally. with rude people that early in the morning, especially you would feel like you would have a little like huff in, huff in you then. Yeah. And she was just seemingly unfazed. She just kept going on. She was, she was a fantastic gate agent. She was just doing her job, like killing it. And I just had it in me. I was like, I need to say something to her when I'm boarding the plane, because like that could have gone so many different ways. Yeah. So as we were, as I, as she was checking me in, I said to her, I said, Hey, I just got to tell you, like you handled that so well and you do your job so well. And that guy was just an asshole. So mm -hmm. like, awesome. And she, you could like see something wash over her where she just looked me in the eye and she was like, Erica, thank you so much. Like that yeah. really means a lot to me. Yeah. And, then and I bet it did mean like, a lot to her. That was even an if, interaction. Even if that, it didn't yeah. necessarily outwardly show, I'm sure that that was a ding for her on the inside. So for her, you to validate that and her behavior in that moment, which is a difficult thing to be. It's hard to be the bigger person, especially when someone's acting like, as you just described this other man, like, that is a difficult situation. It does take a lot. It takes a lot to be the bigger person sometimes, but I truly believe ultimately you walk away feeling better from it because you stood your ground and you didn't sink low. Um, and then in addition, you really show the people around you what it takes. And probably Erica, you'll have situations over the course of your life where something will happen and that will come flooding back to you. You might remember that story and it might inform the way that you react with someone 
because no one's screaming ever looks good. You know, no one ever looks at someone who's screaming at other people and thinks, wow, that person is crushing their life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You think they're out of control and completely inappropriate. And then for the rest of the time, you're probably looking at that guy like, what a jerk. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Uh, Let's talk another buzzword too, imposter syndrome, because I know this is also like right up your alley and in your wheelhouse here. So can you give us the lowdown on what it is, what it stems from, but most importantly for everybody, how to really kick it to the curb? Because this yeah. is something I feel like for all of the ambitious, uh, ambitious ladies in the room among us, we've probably all come face to face with this at some point or another. Yeah. I think the easiest way to describe imposter syndrome is that feeling of when you're in a room looking around thinking, I don't deserve to be here. And I don't belong here when in fact, everyone else is sitting there thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? You know, nobody's thinking about you except for you. And I do believe imposter syndrome starts at a very early age. I think a lot of us feel like we're rewarded for being deferential. We're rewarded for not speaking up. You don't want to be too pushy. All of the things you hear about being a young woman, being bossy, all these words, especially in my, I'm older than you are in my generation. There were so many words that we were taught to almost fear hearing about ourselves. And therefore you did every single thing you could to not be that person. And that, in my opinion, completely informs imposter syndrome. And when you walk into a room and you feel like you're not supposed to be there, it's because you've been told for much of your life that you aren't supposed to be there. So what do you do to get over that is the question I hear almost every single time I I speak. I have imposter syndrome, What do I do? What are some tips? And I say in the book to slam your imposter syndrome. You know, you want to stop the conversation and the thought process where it starts. So what does that mean? A lot of times I'll hear people say, okay, well, I was talking to this person, you know, this very senior male or female, especially, and we'll use you as an example, Erica, because you're pregnant with your second, especially around pregnancy. And they said something along the lines of, oh, it's nice to see you back in the office uh, now that you're back from maternity leave. And instead of thinking to yourself, that's such a nice compliment. You know, I'm so glad they're happy to be here. You start thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, they've noticed that I was on maternity leave. They don't think that I'm doing my job. I need to work harder. I need to come in more. I need to show up because I have children and that's a real problem at work because people are going to think that I'm not good at my job because I have children and I'm distracted or something like that. And I'm using this, by the way, as a personal example, because that's how I often felt as I was having children and going back to work where I had worked for over 13 years. All of a sudden, I felt like anyone who said anything about my children was actually saying something about the fact that I wasn't at work as much or I wasn't doing my job, neither of which was true. But again, imposter syndrome. So what I like to say is the next time that you go into that headspace, stop it right there. Stop and think about what the person said. And then if you are going to create a narrative around that, create a narrative that is positive for you. So someone says to you, Erica, it's so nice to see you back in the office again. I know you've been on two maternity leaves, so it's great to have you here. I would say to myself, what they meant was, wow, you must be incredible at multitasking, Lydia well done having children and being able to manage an office job. Like I know it's a lot. Well done you. And that's what I mean when I say stop the imposter syndrome where it starts, because oftentimes we're creating a narrative that doesn't exist. Sometimes it does, but even if it does, that's just gossip. So let that one go. Um, I say, listen to what the person's saying, not what you think they're saying. So really intently listen and accept that there are no gold stars for being at work. 
Nobody gives you a gold star for doing your job as an adult. And I've seen so many people waiting for other people to say to them, like, you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and more. So welcome to the office. And thank you for being here is a chocolate bar and a glass of wine. Like that doesn't happen, guys. You're an adult. No one gives you a gold star for living the life you want, just as no one takes a gold star away from you for living the life that you don't want. So do whatever you think is right in your life and accept that you're not looking to other people for acceptance. You're not looking to other people for acknowledgement. And most of all, you need to be responsible for giving yourself a gold star. That is incredible. Um, and I love the tidbit about um, switching the narrative to be positive because we don't even realize how quickly we just automatically make the narrative negative. Yeah. And if you really stop and think about it, you're right. It's an entirely made up narrative that we are putting in our own brains and we yeah. just let it happen. And it so rarely, if ever, has a positive spin to it. And yeah. we just accept that as the truth. Yeah, <laughs> and like exactly. our brains are so powerful, they'll believe whatever we tell it to be true. And if we're not careful and intentional with that, man, oh man, you see how the spiral just starts on going and it is all just happening in your own your head. head. Like, And the oh craziest part too is that I will hear people, you know, when let's say I'm giving a speech and I finish and I do the Q&A and someone says, well, how do you get rid of imposter syndrome? And then I ask them, you know, can you give me an example of something that you feel really made you feel like you are not supposed to be in the room or something you heard? And oftentimes it'll be a sentence like the one that I just gave you that's totally benign and actually a compliment and people somehow have twisted it. And so, as I said, listen to what someone says and stop it right there. Stop the sentence where it ends. Don't keep going with it or create something. Or if you are going to create it, make it positive, not negative. Yeah, no, that's so good. That's so good. We've also all heard of, um, you know, mantras or affirmations or power poses so I'm sure you've gotten this cue when you've done speaking, or if not, I mean, I'll be the first to ask, <laughs> but since you, I'm sure you have a great answer here. Have you found anything in particular to maybe work better than the rest that you would kind of universally recommend as a quick real-time confidence boost when you are like in that moment, you need to hype yourself up and you just got to do something that will really give you a quick but meaningful burst of what feels like pretty genuine authentic confidence in my first book the first chapter of my first book the most powerful woman in the room is you starts out in the 10 seconds before i go on stage and so i'm oh, backstage cool. yeah looking at a thousand people staring at a video and the stage is dark and i'm holding a piece of paper with probably five lines of copy and i've been instructed to go out and make millions of dollars for a charity based on whatever i can get from the crowd and I walk out on the stage and almost every single, every single time I take an auction, I have a gavel. I walk up to the podium. I spread the gavel. I look up, huge smile, slam down the gavel three times. And I call it the strike method because it was something I did almost unintentionally to get my confidence up, to say to the crowd who will in 10 seconds start talking to each other unless I really get their attention, to say to the crowd, I'm here, I'm in charge, let's get going. And so I call that move the strike method because I've learned to do it in different ways before I go into room. So 
sometimes I'll sit, if I'm sitting at a table, I'll tap the bottom of the table as if to say, here we go. I've told this to so many people and I really challenge people to think like, what is your strike method? What summons courage? For some people it's mental. They have a mental image. I have a friend who raises money for a charity in Malawi. She's like, every time I go in there, I think about that camp where the kids are every single time. You know, I have, as I said, another friend that I borrowed the here we go under the table, the sort of tapping three times. And I have another one who has a physical rock that she brings into meetings with her, this little stone she found on the beach. And she's like, it's red. Every other stone was black. I saw it that day. And I knew that that was my power pose in many ways, just like having that confidence with me. So I would challenge everyone listening to think, what is it that summons strength in you? You know, for me, it's that gavel, even the visualization. My friend Maggie, who has a company called Mignon Gavigan, does amazing earrings, is actually going to be making charm gavel necklaces for the launch of my second book. And I was like, I think I will never take it off once I put it on, because for me, it's having that gavel in my hand. I just feel like it immediately brings power. So find something in your own life that does that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love that it's gives the freedom for it to be different for everybody because yeah. obviously everybody's source of confidence is going to be a little bit different and it has to feel true to you. So yeah, if you, you can't can bring find a gavel that everywhere. That, <laughs> right. And like, if you find that one thing that makes you light up, like it's not going to be the same pose or the same mantra or the same affirmation or whatever for everybody. And I think trying to copy and paste the same thing is what makes it feel kind of cheesy or inauthentic or where you're just right. like, eh, this isn't really working. So I think yeah man, finding that like one little thing that just works for you is that's clutch. Yeah. And it keeps you moving forward always, you know, because you're not scared anymore. Yes. Oh, Lydia. So good. In getting things wrapped up, I want to ask you something we ask all guests on the show, which is what does thrive mean to you? And how do you strive to thrive in your everyday life? Thriving for me means that I'm in a state where I feel content in everything that I'm doing. And again, as you said, I think thriving is different for everyone. For me, thriving is being full throttle. I love being busy. I love traveling. I love being with my family. I love doing auctions, writing speeches, doing podcasting. I mean, the more, the better. I feel like life is a buffet. So just fill it up. So I thrive when I am moving at the speed of light, which I often am and I'm happiest when I am. I love that. Okay. Now I have, I have to ask this because I yeah. feel like this is um something that everybody will enjoy, but can you give us a tidbit of your auctioneer voice? Because I just love when I hear auctioneers actually like go to town and I'm like, wow, that is so cool and so much respect. And it's just so fun. And this is so unique. So you could totally say no, if you don't feel like it, but Oh, I would never say no to anything. (laughs) Good morning, Erica, and welcome to the first and only ever Thrive Podcast Auction. I am so delighted to be here. And since I'm sitting here with a cup of coffee, I thought perhaps I would auction that off for you. And would you like to start my bidding at, let's say, a million dollars? Everything goes to charity, so go big. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's go big or go home. (laughs) That's it. Well, then a million dollars sold to Erica. She's the only bidder in the room, so she's the only one who can win. Thank you so much for having me on Thrive. It's been a pleasure. And sold to you. Yay. And that is the most expensive cup of coffee I will ever drink, but all for charity. So we're here for it. There you go. There you go. Lydia, tell everybody where they can find you online and also where they can grab copies of your first book and also your new book, which is launching oh so soon. So soon. So you can find me on lydiafinette.com. That's my website. And I'm also very active on Instagram at Lydia Finette and LinkedIn, Lydia Finette as well. You can find The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You on Amazon. And you can find Claim Your Confidence, which comes out March 21st 
on Amazon, but I would prefer that you find it at an independent bookstore, preferably women owned. So look to your local bookstore and get them to buy lots of copies for it because obviously we want to support women in every way, shape and form that I can, but also I love bookstores so much. And finally, my podcast, Claim Your Confidence, launched with Rockefeller Center um, last month. So you can find that um, anywhere you find your podcasts. Wait, before you go, make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Thrive. Drop five stars on your way out if you like what you just listened to. And come join the party on Instagram at thrive.podcast to stay inspired and thriving all week long. Thanks for tuning in. It's your time to thrive.